The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I want to talk tonight about this thing, which isn't a thing, (laughs) in language which doesn't belong there, the challenge of taking the language of our common minds and ways of being into why we do this at all. Freedom, how do we put freedom into words? What do we mean by freedom? So that's what I want to talk about tonight. How we function as humans, as normal humans, with the mind that we have is that we think in concepts, we think about um, objects that we're the subject of, that we know about things, we think about getting things, getting rid of things. It's the way we go about our lives. And this whole practice of ours is its a radical shift from all of that. But we only know how to go about it in the way that we always go about it. So it's a conundrum. Freedom, rather than think in terms of freedom or nibbana or awakening or enlightenment as another thing to get, we need to relate to it more as... Um, a fluid experience, a flash, a moment that can be experienced. Not even a state of experience, but an experience. The verb, actually, of being awake. And at times we are awake and at times we are asleep. We didn't get anything when we were awake, we were just being awake. And we didn't lose anything when we weren't. We just weren't awake in those moments. Some people say that awakening is uh, not so much the end of the path, but the manner of traveling. We can experience being awake right in this moment. It isn't some future time, place, state, after something else. It's an experience that's available, but somehow we can't avail ourselves of this experience so easily. When we have a moment of realizing fully, being fully awake, in the moment that we feel that, and we all have many little ones, and some of us bigger ones, and some of us lots, In any moment of really realizing how things truly are, rather than the mode with which we normally perceive things to be, in that moment, we have this experience of realizing what I thought I was isn't. And the way I thought it all was isn't quite that way. We see nothing changed except the way I perceive That's what changes. And that sense of me being here and something being separate or there being a future no longer functions when this shift happens in perception. It's simply a shift of perception that happens. Nothing else happens. When we're in a different perception, in this shifted state, 
we perceive differently. Subject and object don't appear as separate things. Future and past and now don't appear as separate. But only from that perspective do we see the error of the usual one. And when I say error, I don't even mean to say the wrongness of the usual one. Basically the limits of the usual way we see things. It's not a wrong way, it's a true way. I need to know that I'm me, that I own a green Subaru Impreza and not a white Mercedes because I'd be in big trouble. It's functional. But it isn't the only perspective. It's seeing, seeing something from a particular position, a particular vantage point. Like when I stand on this particular headland, this is what I see. But that doesn't mean that this is all there is. It just means it looks like that from here. But if I were to go over there, it would look different. Instead of seeing another headland, I might see the open ocean. It doesn't make what I saw wrong, but it makes what I saw only part of what there is to see. This change of perception that happens, that can happen and will happen and does happen and has happened to all of us, continues to happen, happens even more so with meditation. Chogun Trungpa says, enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes us accident prone. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that before, some of you. And it's an accident, that it's like by an accident we can't control it. We can't make ourselves see with a shifted perception. Somehow, in some moment, some funny magical accident happens and things suddenly are seen differently. But we can make ourselves more likely to have this shift by practicing. And Jack Cornfield says there, there aren't awakened people, enlightened people, so much as there are enlightened moments. People have moments of seeing clearly. And then they, they pass. And some people have the occasional moment, little tiny glimpses. Some people have them frequently. Some people have them that last a long time. Some people claim that they have them all the time. Maybe they have lots of free moments and then a moment when they actually aren't seeing fully clearly. We don't quite know how to measure how this is except by how people behave. But rather than thinking of this person is enlightened and this one isn't and this is free and this isn't, it's actually experience, which is momentary. Because all of our experience is only momentary. The rest is concept. We did have experiences in the past, but they aren't actually real anymore. It's just our ability to recall them that gives them any kind of meaning. But they aren't actually happening. All that's really, really happening is just in this moment. So of course, enlightenment isn't a state, it's a moment. an experience, a glimpse of seeing a slightly different version of reality. It's quite striking when everyone has such a glimpse. What we see when we think of ourselves, when we perceive ourselves from a shifted perspective in this way, the most recognizable, it seems to me, I mean I can only speak from my experience of course, and what some other people seem to say they are experiencing, is that the sense of me, the usual sense of me, is 
um, looks extremely busy in comparison. It appears that my usual way of seeing things requires me to show up and do an awful lot of stuff. To think an awful lot of thoughts, to make a lot of plans, to try an awful lot of doing, to put a lot of effort out, to try and make something something. To change this, to fix that, to get more of this, to have less of that, to understand this, to blame that, to justify this, to try and remember that. It's extremely busy in there. And in a moment of a shift of this consciousness, when I'm not on this particular stance of myself, when that is no longer functioning in this moment of a shifted perception, there isn't any one to do anything about anything, because there's no such thing as one and thing. There just is. What's happening? And it's an extreme relief compared to me having to get something together, having to chase or want or need or not be quite satisfied. And Andrea described in all those ways last night the description of what it's like when we don't have that shifted perception. We're in our usual perception, where we are wanting this, needing that, irritated about this, all the time, not quite, it's not quite okay. I've still got to get something together here. Just another bit more of something, a bit less of something. It's work, being this separate sense of self. And we and it's a struggle, it's a burden, this working, this trying, this needing, it's restless. And some people, one of the Tibetans, Sogyi Rinpoche, calls it exhausting. This exhausted mind. And when we notice from outside of that position, like going onto the other headland and looking back and seeing it, it's like, it's so exhausting, the way we normally go about things. But because it's all we know when we're in it, like the fish in the sea. The fish doesn't know it's in the sea. It's just normal reality. Only when we get a shift of perception do we see this reality and realize how exhausting it is and how much we're busy doing all the time. We don't just see how busy we are and how exhausting it is. We also see, and it's kind of sad, but we see how ridiculous it is. Because these efforts we think will make us happy, but actually it's the very efforting that's the struggle. And if we stopped doing the effort, we wouldn't need to be happier. We'd be perfectly okay just as it is. And so we're, we're trying to get something, and the very trying to get it is stopping us feel the thing we're looking for. It's just so sad. It's a confusion. And so we're actually all very sweet and very dear, and we're all doing the best we can to be better, to feel okay. But that's the problem. <laughs> so it's such a bind we're in as humans with these minds. And the thing about these minds of ours is, as we've evolved over these thousands of years, they've served us extremely well. We experience, and as the Buddha teaches, and as you all know very well, what's called the eight vicissitudes, or the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the ups and the pleasures and the gains and the praise, and, the, and then all the opposites, and everything in between. And that is a fact. But we have evolved that we don't really believe that fact. At least we don't believe that it's necessary to go along with that fact. So when things are up, and good and pleasant, we believe, we really all believe that's the way to be. Yes, success, good, 
I like it, I want it, that's the whole idea. And when it goes the other way, we all feel, oh no, I'm in trouble now, this isn't okay. And even though our conceptual minds can say, yes, you know, life goes up and life goes down, when it actually goes down, we go, oh no, this, is, this isn't all right, don't we? We don't actually behave from the understanding. We behave from the misunderstanding that it shouldn't be that way. It's supposed to be better than down, always, <laughs> and to st stay this way. So we aren't actually behaving in a way that we know is, is, is sensible or appropriate even. But we know no other way, because what has happened over our evolution is if we do in fact prefer the good things and lots of food instead of starvation, for example, we survive better. And we have learned that game and done extremely well. Look, we're overrunning the planet. And so on a practical level, this preferring what's comfortable and nice housing and plumbing and agriculture, for instance, building terraces on steep hills where normally food wouldn't grow so we can grow food so more of us can survive. It's very smart. But it's, it, we've, we've invested in it so much that we think that's, that's right. And so we should be able to manipulate our experience to make it work for our own comfort and security. But actually there's an arrogance in that because then the assumption is when we can't make it to be the way we want it to be, something is wrong. And when we succeed, then we're, you know, good for me. That's what we should be doing. So we have distorted our preferencing. To have a certain preference for comfort is reasonable. It's sensible. But we've made that be kind of the law. And we live according to those expectations. And so we, we're endlessly living out that wish to have the things we think we should and to get rid of the things that we don't like. Because we've done it so successfully for our evolution, we've lost the perspective that, you know what, it doesn't always work. And then when something happens that's bigger than us, that stops it from happening, we call it an act of God or a natural disaster or something. And all we need to do is to look at nature and see that nature isn't actually on our side particularly. People say, nature's so unfair. Well, nature is completely unfair. Nature just is. Things just happen according to conditions. Lots of rain saturates hillsides, mudslides, buries people. Is that fair or unfair? There's no such thing. It just is. But from our limited point of view, we want it to work for us, me, myself, or my community, or whatever. We judge that as an error. Some words of the Buddha. All of the teachings of the Buddha, everything he taught, was trying to help us unlearn that belief that I want more of this and I want less of that and therefore I will be happy to reveal to us the error, the limited view, to free us 
from being bound to having to have more of what we like and less of what we don't. We are caught in a prison of trying to make this happen, looking for happiness. And happiness is the shift of perspective, perception that allows us to no longer need to make it different. Things just are as they are from a different perspective, not the self-centered normal one, normal, which is the ego, the sense of me, the, the ego's home base. Thus, friends, the essentials of the holy life do not consist in the profits of gain, of honor, of a good name, being a good yogi, looking good, walking slowly, nor even in the profits of observing moral rules, nor even in the profits of knowledge and insight. Even though we have insights, that's not the point. The point is the sure heart's release friends. That, friends, is the meaning, that is the essence, that is the goal of living this holy life. The sure heart's release, the sense of freedom that comes when we no longer feel confined by this sense of me, this ego, which is a tight, tiring, slightly futile state of behaving. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. When we think thoughts, it's actually the ego that's thinking the thoughts. When we're in a shift of perspective in any moment, an aha moment, thinking isn't happening. There's just, ah, awareness, just an open, clear isness. All that we are arises with our thoughts. When there aren't those thoughts, there isn't me arising. With our thoughts, we make the world. We make this view of how things are. We think it. We perceive it. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. And he goes on to say that if we speak or, the act, or we act with an impure mind, not seeing this clearly, trouble will follow us as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow us as our shadows unshakable. The happiness is the happiness of the sure heart's release, the feeling of freedom, of ease that comes when we can step out of this perception of, I need to do something. This the luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people don't really understand, and so don't cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is, a, it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble followers of the way really understand, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. The mind is luminous, but it's covered over or colored by these visiting ways of seeing. These distort our perception. I want chocolate. If I really want chocolate, I'm not so happy, especially if I can't get it, or until the moment that I have it, and then it goes away and then I want more. This is the state of mind that becomes 
covered over by the sense of me wanting to do something about something and everything that comes that we beha- that we do that we think in this way from this usual perception is extra is on top of the free mind what the buddha teaches us in all kinds of ways is how to help us shift this perception how to see through the sense of me so we see it isn't so solid and real and, li- and ri- the only way to be and for instance he'll say um, he, there's a teaching as lots of you know there's lots of the teachings um, a teaching on the se- sense of who you are actually is made up of five different aspects called the five aggregates there is a there is a form there is a, a pleasant or an unpleasant aspect to the experience there is the ability to perceive to remember what it is there's an intention to do something about it and there's an awareness of the whole show he's in this teaching and i'm not going to teach it tonight but he talks about when you think that you really are something look and see that actually all there is is a as a process as a combination of things going on there isn't actually any one it's just this these faculties snapping functioning as a way to help us shift from being stuck in believing that we are what we think we are when we haven't had that shift he also gives a teaching on the 12 links of dependent origination which i'm not even going to list tonight for the same reason to see how wh- what we think of of how life is isn't it's in fact something leading to 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 something and it's a process it isn't the solidity that this normal way of perceiving perceives He also teaches that we notice the three characteristics of existence. If you look closely and truly and honestly, unflinchingly, steadily, with interest at any experience, you will see it has the characteristic of changing. Nothing is as solid as you think. Even what you think of as yourself isn't. It's a changing response mechanism if you like. that can be seen when we are able to look closely when we look at see that we think something is something we see it actually isn't really something that's just a temporary label i've put on a a temporary manifestation for example a leaf now a leaf is a bunch of cells that actually at some point were inside the ground and then they were up inside the tree and then down to the twigs and then bulged out of the end of a twig into a green thing most leaves are green mainly they're copper colored and some are yellow but anyway let's say green for a while which especially if it's a deciduous one change color the lot of the juice comes out of it the thing shrivels up falls off disintegrates becomes soil possibly goes into another tree goes up further higher maybe becomes a limb of the tree this time we call it leaf limb soil compost leaf mold we give it names for this temporary manifestation that it's in for a moment but then it becomes something else and something else and something else a leaf isn't really a real thing it's just a name for a temporary manifestation of something same thing for me same thing for you and when that's called a nata nothing is really discreetly the thing that it appears to be it's just a way we get to communicate with each other pass me that juice would you if i didn't call it that that kind of you know fluidy moving temporary bit of something in that plastic container it's just quicker to say juice we've used all these words to communicate with but we believe that we believe in the reality that we're describing with this mind and we've forgotten to see the big picture we've been seduced by our own thinking mechanism by our own languaging we're describing a kind of a play 
but it's real because we've we've forgotten it's a play. It's like that. So I'm going to read you a few words from a a monk, Henri Van Zeist, monk who practiced in uh, Colombia. I don't even know the date of it. It's just some teachings that I got one time on retreat at the Forest Refuge, and I photocopied this because I was so inspired by his words. He's describing freedom. He's describing a state of experience of a moment of freedom from the sense of self, Nibbana, it's called. When the self is gone through insight, when the struggle is then the struggle is over, the burden is lifted, the fetters are broken, the path is there without obstacles and hindrances, and there is freedom. The path is there and there is freedom to walk, but the path doesn't lead to a goal. For the path, which is freedom, is the goal. And there is no walker, no purpose, no subject, no object, but just the freedom to walk, the freedom to live, the freedom to be free, now. In watching that freedom, there is an awareness of what has been missed out all along. There is a joy in leaving out all what has been felt as pleasure. There is the awareness that all is good and right, while leaving aside all satisfaction, there is an even-mindedness which is no longer a balancing between should and should not, but which understands only this single moment of experiencing what is, without distortion, without fixation, without aspiration, without reference to past or future, without knowledge of self. When there is understanding with insight, it doesn't mean there are no more emotions, no more feelings, no more perceptions. But they will have ceased to be interruptions. There may be pain, but no more sorrow. There may be knowledge, but no misunderstanding. There may be loss, but no more grief. There may be action, but no more reaction. Wounds, but no more scars. Energy, but not effort. Thus the path of understanding is a path of insight from moment to moment but not with an aim of comprehension. Insight must see what is and what is not and why it is thus. It's the nature of seeing, of understanding. It has no object of sight. It is sight seeing what is, choiceless, without volition, without selection, without intention. In that understanding, actuality ceases to evoke reaction the ideal ceases to provoke desire. And in the absence of reaction and projection, there is neither past nor future, neither being nor becoming. And on and on and on it goes. How to put words around an experience. I just I like some of what he says there. To be able to see clearly what is and what isn't the sense of myself and what is really happening. To have this shift of perception requires training, which is why we practice. The training is to be able to develop the faculty to see clearly. We're not looking for anything. We're not looking at anything. We just keep on learning to keep looking. And whatever gets revealed, gets revealed. Whatever is, is revealed. And who knows what that will be and how that will be for each person. We're learning to look.
and to look steadily and to look honestly and to look intimately and to look with a caring and an interest. So that's why we learn the, the attitudes of meditation. And it isn't really so important at all what we look at. It's, it's that we look. So we can look at the breath, we can look at the body, we can look at being upset, we can look at being calm. It doesn't matter what we look at, we're learning to look. And that steady gaze reveals what is so. But our gaze, usually untrained, which is why we're so struggly, isn't, isn't steady. We don't see very much. We just see a glancing glimpse of this and then this and then that. And you sit here with your mind trying to even just watch your breath. And it's sort of here and then it's gone and then it's remembering this and then it's chiding you about that and then it's wishing for something. It's a very all over the place look. And we just train it gently to be able to be steadier about what it's seeing. And then it can see more clearly. When you first look at something, you just get an impression. But when you keep on looking, you see more of it and more of it and you get to understand it. I like the word intimacy. When we're intimate with a person, we really look at them a lot. And we really let them in a lot. We really slowly, steadily get to know more and more. You don't get intimate with somebody by a quick impression. That's the opposite. It's very superficial. So it's this kind of intimacy with all things, as Suzuki Roshi called it. To, uh, to steady our ability to understand what's happening. So that's why we do this training, to steady the mind, to settle the mind down. One of the reasons um, that we suggest as a, an instruction is hearing practice is because um, when we, what we do, what the ego does, the sense of me, what I usually do is I add something on top of experience. There's an experience and then I add, oh, I like it, I want more of it. We add an explanation. We add a justification. We add um, a blame or a judgment or an expectation, anything, we add on. When we do hearing practice, it's quite relatively easy to see that there's a sound and then the mind goes, blue jay. They're different. That's what the mind added on. And we're learning to try and meet experience just in the raw, just what is, or whatever a blue jay does, without going into the like, oh, there's a blue jay. I wonder if that's the same one I saw at breakfast. But just the directness of it. We're learning to be able to do that because it's the extra that is the ego storytelling mind that we mostly do and we mostly unfortunately not just do but believe. So when the mind adds on, which of course it does all the time, the trouble is we believe it's addition. Once we can see the mind is adding on a story, the story isn't so real. We just see that that's the mind doing that. That's what minds do. But until we see the mind doing it, it does it without our realizing it, and, and it convinces us that what it's just done is what is happening. It's the truth. So when we then have a thought like, oh, that person's a... Look at that lazy person. We've just seen somebody, say, lying down, but the mind has said, oh, they're lazy, and then we believe they're lazy. They may not be lazy. It may be... Who knows what they may be? They may be studying ants, for all we know, or something. But we have described it in a way that we now have bought into. This is, the, this is why the mind is such a tricky thing and it needs training. It's utterly convincing. So if we're in a paranoid moment, somebody's after us, we're sure of it. But actually that's not necessarily the case at all. It's just the way I'm perceiving.
So as we train the mind, we're able to, to free ourselves from the conviction that what we're thinking is the truth. We see that we're just adding. It may or may not be so. As we begin to question, and therefore not be so convinced by our thoughts, that is unbelievably significant, unbelievably liberating. It's the way we describe reality that has us trapped. As long as we don't see the game. When we see that we're describing reality, then okay, so I'm describing it this way. I can see I'm doing that. I can do that or not do that. I can believe it less or more. I can check it out or question it. But if I don't realize that's what's happening, I am convinced by my thoughts that this is the way it is. And this is how most of us are. This person is the enemy. Let's go to war. without questioning that that was just perception it may or not be founded on anything and it's usually not actually <clears throat> Hafiz who's one of my favorite poets, poets and some of you know me enough to know this I always quote every talk I have to quote Hafiz he's a contemporary of Rumi he's one of those Persian mystical poets from about the 1400s just one line of a poem of his, jealousy and most all of your problems are from believing you know better than God. That's what he's saying. It's like this is your perception. You believe this, you know, the way you're thinking is how you think it should be, not the way it actually is. We add on what we think on top of how it is. There's a sound, we add on the comment, the description, the explanation, the liking, the planning. We're think, we think we're God, and we think our minds, the thoughts it has, are actually are, are this p powerful, all-knowing thing. And actually they're not. They're just makers of opinion, these minds. Ch churning out opinions all the time. Non-stop, as you see, you're sitting here, t especially one of the troubles with new beginning meditators is they think they're supposed to still the mind, and it's unbelievably embarrassing to discover, how could I ever possibly, we can't actually still it. It does get quiet. The mind can get very quiet at times in deep meditation. But it isn't that we're trying to still it. What we're trying to do is realize that it's thinking a bunch of junk. We don't have to buy into this. That's the point, is to see the, f see the antics of this mind, this busy mind telling stories, making comments. So the freedom that we're talking about is freedom from the tyranny of the way we think. The way we think is dukkha, as Andrea described so thoroughly. I want this, I like that, I don't like this, this isn't quite okay. Any moment where we're not completely fine and peaceful, any moment where there's a sense of me having to do something about something, that's the dukkha. And freedom is freedom from that, that dukkha, whatever, whatever kind, all those kinds that she described for us so thoroughly last night. Hafez once more. First, he says, before we even begin our spiritual path, this is what gets us into this spiritual path. First thing is, the fish has to say, something ain't right about this camel ride. And I'm feeling so damn thirsty. <laughs> so dukkha is the first is the first noble truth, meaning it's an ennobling truth. It's ennobling if we can get the fact that we're struggling. If we realize we're struggling and I'm so damn thirsty, and this isn't quite right here, this camel ride when you're a fish, then 
that's the beginning of me saying, something's off here, I need to look at this, maybe I can learn some other way. So that, that it's ennobling to realize that we're struggling. If we don't realize we're struggling, we think this is the way it's supposed to be. And we don't know, even, that we're in this little limited point of view with an opinion that isn't the truth anyway, that's, that was running us. So we've got to feel this dukkha. It's ennobling to feel it, to get that this is an angsty feeling instead of a sense of ease. But it's very hard when it's all we've known. When we have a moment of a shift of perception, we really get the dukkha is me trying to make this real. We forget it and remember and forget and remember. But once we've had that shift, we remember that we've shifted. What we do with suffering, what the Buddha is teaching us, is first we need to recognize that there's suffering. We have to understand it. Then we, with time, have to let it be. We don't just recognize it. We have to say, okay, yes, suffering is happening. Not just, oops, there's suffering, quick, run away. But yes to the suffering. Then, so we let it be. Then we learn, actually, that it is yucky that any kind of anxiety or judgment is alienating and that feels, it feels unpleasant in the body. When we feel how unpleasant it is, who wants to suffer? But we first have to know that we're suffering before we realize we can say, I don't actually like this suffering, it's a drag. And as we keep recognizing, oh, I'm doing it again and I'm struggling some more. Oh, I'm doing it and again, here I am struggling some more. As we keep recognizing the struggling, less and less does it convince us. Sooner and sooner do we realize, oh, this is that again. And then it's a process of not falling prey to the struggling ego over and over and over. And there come times when a certain situation just doesn't trigger an egotistical response anymore. So we call, we, it's seen, it's seen through. We see, oh, there is the mind creating a problem here. We see it as that. We see through the game. We're not caught in the game. We see through it. And eventually uh, these strugglings are uprooted. They don't reappear. And that's the process that happens. And then some other one reappears. So it's like, that's why it isn't a goal. It's a manner of traveling, this increasingly experiencing ease, the increasingly abandoning struggle. How we abandon and uproot the struggling is we starve it. And what we starve it from is believing in its reality. When we see it's a trick that the mind is playing that's creating a story and we see it as a story not as reality, it's getting starved. It's thriving when we believe it. So when I'm such an idiot is believed in, that struggle is alive and well. When I see to myself, look, I'm judging myself again, the belief in it isn't there and so it diminishes. As Andrea was explaining towards the end of her talk last night, that's how the process works. Starving and feeding. The Buddha uses these terms a lot. We starve what isn't true. We feed what is wholesome. And how we actually, how we starve and feed is to watch closely. It's called giving appropriate attention to what's happening. And when we see there's a struggle, we look at it appropriately, we give it appropriate, give attention, it's a gift. You actually pay attention. You actually give your, your, yourself to this realizing, to looking. And then when it's unwholesome, it's seen. Who's going to want to keep doing that? When it's wholesome, it's beautiful. It feels free and lovely. 
Who's going to not want that? So the system does it automatically if we look closely and clearly and see truly. Our practice is training us to give appropriate attention to what is. When we don't put the extra comment, judgment, expectation, etc., wishing, all of the busy things that we, we tend to do so all of the time, when we stop doing that in a moment, what we feel, we all know, we feel calm. We feel, oh, what a relief. There's peace. When there's calm and peace inside, there's a sense of space. When there's a sense of space in the heart, there's actually room for you. I'm actually available to get to know you and understand you and care about you. When I'm busy struggling with all my busyness, I actually don't have the slightest bit of space for somebody else. That's not loving. Loving is when there's some openness and space for and interested in another person. That comes as this busy little ego behavior subsides. Another thing that we experience in this absence of ego or lessening of this sense of me having to do something is, uh, as described by this monk here, is uh, a balanced state, a state where we don't get, oh, this is exciting, oh, this is awful, where we don't react to things. It goes up, it goes down. Yes, it goes up, it goes down, so what? We are more steady and balanced. We say, yes, that's what life is like. It's up sometimes and down sometimes. That's called wisdom, non-reactivity. So we're more loving, we're more calm, we're more happy, we're more peaceful. And another thing we feel is that everything's okay just as it is. This is enough. We don't have to do something about something. Here's a David White poem. A lot of you know these poems. We read at retreats because they're so perfect for retreatants. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these few words this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. It's very simple opening to what is. It's very simple. What we do normally is way harder, is really a lot. We're actually doing less. We're not learning yet more to do with what we have. And we ask, like, what should I do with this? Less. <laughs> Just be with this. Some of you know, you're Californians, I suspect you all know um, Byron Katie. And her work, and uh, one of, her, one of her, her first book was like, Loving what is. Or another phrase of hers is, I want, no, in harmony with the way things are. In harmony with the way things are. This is the freedom that she talks about. This is the freedom the Buddha talks about. To be with what is, not what we would like there to be. I want what is, just that, but that. Said Wu Wei Wu. He was actually an Englishman.
the Buddha, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is, in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live alone. When we uh, talk about the precepts and we live in the, in the world according to the precepts if we can, the precepts are guidelines to help us restrain from the more grosser behaviors of the ego. The sense of me who wants something and who'll do anything to get it will actually steal. If, you know, I want to impress somebody and have them think that I'm really smart, I may lie, and so on. The, the more gross behaviors that are egotistical behaviors are restrained by these precepts. Don't exploit people. It's so egotistical to exploit for one's own betterment, take advantage of another. That's why they're, they're such wholesome guidelines. Because our egos, I mean, and we can refine the ego unbelievably and unbelievably, little tiny moments of me and then not a sense of myself and then a little bit more. But the precepts actually guard against the sort of the, the most rampant egotistical behavior. I just wanted you to see them in those terms. Yelling and cheating and so on. The last few things I want to say um, are um, quotations from this book, and I don't know if any of you have read this book, and it's uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor, the woman who had the stroke of insight. Who here does not know this? Okay, a few of you don't know about this. So this is a woman who is a neuroanatomist, brilliant in her field, young and very far advanced in her career, at age 37, who had a very dramatic stroke that particularly localized itself just in the left hemisphere of her brain and didn't impair her right hemisphere at all. And because she was a neuroanatomist and understood the brain, she understood exactly what was happening. And she described it thoroughly and it took her 10 years to recover. But she really got to experience being in the right hemisphere and not at all in the left. But she was previously very much in the left because she's a very brilliant left hemisphere kind of brain scientist person. Anyway, she has got a few things that I want to quote because they are about freedom. And, and I just find this quite fascinating, to tell you the truth. She doesn't know anything about Buddhism. She doesn't know anything about the, the wise teacher's teachings on Nibbana or freedom, but she experiences them in these ways. I liked knowing I was a fluid. I loved knowing my spirit was at one with the universe and in the flow with everything around me. I yearned to be in a place where people were calm and valued my experience of inner peace. She's describing the state she was in for a long time before her left, her left hemisphere started functioning again, which it gradually did.
When I stand on a mountaintop and let my eyes relax, my right mind takes in the magnificence of the open vista. Physiologically, I feel the majesty of the overall view deep inside my being, and I am humbled by how beautiful our planet is. I can recall this moment by either reconstructing the vision or by recalling the feeling it elicits. My left mind is completely different. It eagerly focuses my attention on the specific types of trees, the colors in the sky, analyzes the sounds of the specific birds, it discriminates the types of clouds, delineates the tree line, and registers the temperature of the air. This is a very good description of the two aspects of our minds. My stroke of insight would be, peace is only a thought away. And all we have to do to access it is silence the voice of our dominating left mind. And when we look at our meditation training, that's really what we're doing. We're noticing and not buying into the busy verbiage, all of the commentating that goes on out of the left hemisphere. So we can be more balanced humans. We've developed the left hemisphere in our evolution so strongly that we have often lost touch with this other sense of connection and fluidity, as she calls it. My two hemispheric personalities not only think about things differently, but they process emotions and carry my body in easily distinguishable ways. At this point, even my friends are capable of recognizing who's walking into the room by how I'm holding my shoulders and what's going on with that furrow in my brow. My right hemisphere is all about right here, right now. It bounces around with unbridled enthusiasm and doesn't have a care in the world. It smiles a lot and is extremely friendly. In contrast, my left hemisphere is preoccupied with details and runs my life on a tight schedule. It's my more serious side. It clenches my jaw and makes decisions based upon what it learned in the past. It defines boundaries and judges everything as right, wrong, or good, bad. Oh yes, it does that thing with my brow. <laughs> I had a very interesting experience recently. Uh, the last retreat I was teaching, there's a woman who I actually know and uh, so I've known some of her history, and she had a very difficult, uh, painful, abusive childhood. Um, and so she's a very overcompensating left brain person who's worried, anxious, planning, busy, you know, very burns a lot of food, very hyper kind of a person, mm -hmm. and knows that she's had a difficult childhood and is using meditation, has come to meditation relatively recently. On this retreat recently, she encountered, she, I mean, she's, it's been a fascinating journey observing her go through. She encountered an experience whereby, um, and I'll describe her experience, she felt that she was about the age of five and um, that her a mother, I don't think it was her mother, but a gentle guide mother type figure was urging her to go down a flight of stairs into the dark dungeony area that she was scared of going to, saying to her that her twin sister was down there somewhere wanting to meet her and that they, she'd wanted them to meet. So she, despite her fear, went down these stairs towards the dark and the messiness, and there was a little glow somewhere underneath a pile of chains and broken things. And she, even though she was afraid, kept going and went to the, into the, towards the light, got inside there and met her twin sister. And her twin sister was um, all very bubbly and vivacious and had blonde curly ringlets and was like a bit rascally and and rather out of control, and she realized, in contrast, she was the dark-haired, staid, careful, organized, cautious one, and the twin sister bounds up to her and says, yay, 
I've been, you know, I've been waiting for you forever. I need you. I want to live in your heart. And which she just goes like, I don't think so. You know, I don't even know you. I've just met you like a second ago. I don't know about living in my heart. And so she said, well, okay, that's a bit much. But anyway, let's just be good friends because you need me and I need you. Like I'm a little bit over the top and you definitely need a little more. And so they went off together. And she then told me about this experience. And, uh, and this is just another funny detail of her experience that I found so delightful. She, she had arranged prior to the retreat that she, she had some damage to her neck, that she had a chiropractor appointment to go to this particular day in the middle of the retreat, which she was given special permission for. We don't usually encourage you to go off like this, but she did. And she said, but my twin sister is telling me that I've got to um, get an ice cream while I'm out from the retreat. <laughs> And she said, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to. And I said, you must. <laughs> and she said, my twin sister says, I've got to have like red toenails. And she's never, ever, she said, I've only ever had occasionally pale pink toenails. So she came back in the afternoon and she came up to me waggling her red toenails. And she said, on a scale of one to 10, the ice cream was 25. <laughs> it's like she had overfunctioned in her left hemisphere because of her background all this time. And she was now able to come more into balance and even we could describe it as being this other aspect of herself. I just, I found that such a delightful healing. She's doing well. Mm. A few more quotes from this because it's so fascinating. <clears throat> the portion of my left mind that I chose not to recover was the part of, that, of my left hemisphere character that had the potential to be mean, worry incessantly, or be verbally abusive to either myself or others. Frankly, I just didn't like the way these attitudes felt physiologically inside my body. My chest felt tight. I could feel my blood pressure rise. The tension in my brow would give me a headache. In addition, I wanted to leave behind any of my old emotional circuits that automatically stimulated the instant replay of painful memories. I have found life to be too short to be preoccupied with the pain from the past. Who does this? Who talks to themselves and worries and blames themselves? We do this so much we don't question it. We just think it's the truth of things. Because she had absence from that, when she recovered it, she realized she actually had some choice about whether she was going to be run by it or not. And at times it's useful. It helps to get into the right car. But she doesn't have to assume that it is the only way. Nowadays, I spend a whole lot of my time thinking about thinking just because I find my brain so fascinating. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. There has been nothing more empowering than the realization that I don't have to think thoughts that bring me pain. Of course, there's nothing wrong with thinking about things that bring me pain as long as I'm aware that I'm choosing to engage in that emotional circuitry. And when Andrea said, was talking about emotions last night and again this morning, when we feel that we're in some kind of a struggle, if we can get what that's like for our systems, that helps us choose do we want to continue in this way or not. But if we just stay with the talking and the comments, we'll just keep running it. But when we ask you to come down from that busy storytelling and feel what's going on in your body, then it really will tell you, this is actually unwholesome. This sucks. If indeed that's the case. 
Learning to listen to your brain from the position of a non-judgmental witness may take some practice and patience. Does take some practice and patience. <laughs> but once you master this awareness, you become free to step beyond the worrisome drama and trauma of your storyteller. When my brain runs loops that feel harshly judgmental, counterproductive, or out of control, I wait 90 seconds for the emotional, physiological response to dissipate. She can measure, because she knows how to do this, and she's got the, the, the equipment, literally. When there's an emotional trigger, that response floods the system for 90 seconds. Wait it out, and it's gone. If you keep doing it, it's because you're using thoughts to keep the thing going. The actual direct experience is a temporary visitor. 90 seconds, it's a useful thing to know. If you're in the throes of anger, just wait it out, 90 seconds. Hmm. Okay, I think I'm just about done here. Hmm. Remember what the underlying physiology feels like. We really learn the underlying physiology of freedom feels calm, spacious, ease, the sure heart's release. The underlying physiology of dukkha feels tense, tight, tiring, busy, stressful, angst. Use whatever words you choose. We can perceive it directly. We can get the underlying physiology of whether we're free in a moment or not. And that's how we learn. We learn by recognizing our own truth in any moment. Regardless of the garden I have inherited, once I consciously take over the responsibility of tending my mind, I choose to nurture the circuits that I want to grow and consciously prune back the circuits I prefer to live without. Although it's easier to nip a weed when it is just a sprouting bud, with determination and perseverance, even the gnarliest of vines, when deprived of fuel, would eventually lose their strength and fall to the side. She sounds like the Buddha. This is why we practice. We're nipping things in the bud. We're pruning things. We're encouraging wholesome states. We get to know them, feel them. This isn't some faraway nibbana that maybe someday... Feel inside yourself. When there's a moment of ease, there isn't dukkha. When there's contraction, anxiety, there's dukkha. Honestly, keep looking. See for yourself. There are moments, we have them all. And we can totally invite and make ourselves accident prone. We just have to keep looking and being honest. <laughs> 